Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When couples want marriage or divorce, they think fairness. When people are dissatisfied with their place in life, they think change. When people look at their own status, they think better or worse. If all this makes sense to you, then according to 1 Corinthians, your priorities are all wrong. Instead of caring about the gospel, you are thinking about you. That may please your life coach, but it won't get you very far with St. Paul. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 108 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This morning we begin our discussion of the marriage triptych in 1 Corinthians. This is the first of three examples where Paul deals explicitly with marriage. And for Paul, sexuality and marriage, insofar as they're tied to the household, create the perfect opportunity to explain how his policy of just losing to the other plays out in everyday life. What we'll hear when we talk about marriage and sexuality in chapter 7 is that nothing matters but the gospel. So Paul's way of assessing what is right or what is wrong in the marriage bed pertains to its utility for the gospel. Too often people hear Paul's teaching and assume that it is unity and a peaceful accord for the sake of the church. That's not correct. The gospel is making a stop in the church on its way to the nations. And whatever it deposits in the church for the sake of the church's well-being is not for the church ultimately, but for the nations. Because if you are just inward-looking, then suddenly the church in Roman Corinth is no different than Israel in the story of the prophets. It is not unity for your personal enjoyment. Because as we've said, communities that just want to maintain unity for the sake of unity do really well in material terms, but what good is that if the gospel isn't preached? Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Human beings have sexual drive. If you become obsessed or if you become all caught up in immoralities because of your sexual drive, the problem is not sex. The problem is that the gospel is not preached. The gospel is not served. You are wasting time. So in effect, he's saying, let's just get married so you have a sexual outlet so we can go back to studying and preaching. Paul has been spending so much time emphasizing purity and how purity is not what it's all about. Paul wants to take the 
emphasis off of purity and put the emphasis on love so that the gospel can continue to be preached. Sex here is like circumcision, is like food offered to idols. It's immaterial. With respect to the objective of God's household, your sexual desire is getting in the way. So Paul is effectively saying this is a correct and orderly way to deal with your sexual drive so that it is under control for the sake of the common good. Sexual immorality is always linked to apostasy and disloyalty towards God in particular. So here it's good for a man not to touch a woman because then a man can be completely dedicated towards teaching and to spreading the gospel. Now, because people are not faithful to the teaching willing to dedicate their entire life to it, it's too difficult or whatever, then it's okay. Get married, have a wife, have a husband, so that at least instead of 100% dedicated to the gospel, at least you can be 80% dedicated. This is how you explain this passage to teenagers. You're in college, you're dating, fine. Is it affecting your grades? Now we have a problem. Is it affecting how much you're willing or able to help others who are in need? Now we have a problem. Is it destroying your relationships? Is it corrupting your priorities. For Paul, the issue is priority. What is your priority? Speaking as a true father, get your priorities aligned, and then sexuality will not be an issue, and abstinence will not be an issue. If it's an issue, we have a problem. No, the teenager can say, oh, but I love her. I love him. It's love. It's love. Yes, but it's a love where you get something back in return. Are you available to love the one who gives you nothing in return because this is the love that Paul wants to emphasize. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. So now he's saying, okay, in the household we have the opportunity for marriage, but now that we're married, we have to get back to the business of the gospel, which means that everybody has a duty to fulfill in the household and everyone has to submit. That's the key point here. It's submission. And once again, as we've emphasized over and over in this podcast, submission to God involves submission to other people. I mean, you can't say that the single person or the celibate person, oh, they're the ones who are dedicated to the gospel. They're the ones who really have to be working the gospel. It's their job. They need to do that. And he's saying, oh, no, by the way, because you're married, because you were not willing to dedicate yourself completely to the gospel, I have news for you. Within your marriage, you must be completely dedicated to the gospel in the way that you treat your wife. You imagine that because you're married, you now have your own household. But if you are baptized in one of Paul's churches, it's not your household. You are within God's household administered by the Apostle Paul or one of his proxies. Now, if that's the case, you are a slave. I'm giving this as context for the next verse. Because you are a slave, parenthetically, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What this means is that God is the head, but not your philosophical God. He is present in power in the person of your spouse. So you say you love God, let's see how that plays out in your marriage, male or female. You don't belong to yourself, you belong to God, but God's ownership is made flesh, for lack of a better expression, in your relationship with your spouse. So, stop depriving one another. 
except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The purpose of marriage is to preach the gospel. And if it means sometimes that you have to support your spouse when you don't want to, that's an act of love and submission. It cuts both ways. You can't impose sexuality on your spouse, but at the same time, if your spouse is in need, if you're able, you shouldn't deny them. This is what Paul is saying. And I like how it uses Satan here, because Satan is always the one that's there to test your loyalty, just like with Job. Oh yeah, he's so good, he loves you so much, but what happens if something bad happens? Is he really as loyal as you think? You don't want Satan to test your loyalty. So you make sure that your loyalty to your spouse is above all the most important. And I love this expression that he inserts because it's a letter that's so forceful in the imposition of slavery and submission. Yet with respect to sexuality, Paul says that between the couple, there needs to be agreement. So there are reasonable reasons why someone may ask their partner that you not have sex. When you're talking about sex relative to your partner in your marriage, it can't be self-centered. It can't be about what you want or you don't want because your role in the marriage, male or female, is to help the other person in their vocation to study, to preach, and to live the gospel. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. So in Paul's case, sex is not an issue for him. It doesn't make him better than someone who's getting married. It just means that he has found a way to prioritize the gospel without any obstacles. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. There easily could be within the community tension between those who are celibate and single and consider themselves extra dedicated to the gospel and those who are married who have a family who consider themselves extra dedicated to the gospel because of the way that they have to love their family and love their spouse. And raise their children. And raise their children. They have all these reasons. But what he says, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so what Paul does is he says, oh, okay, people who are not married, they're completely dedicated to the gospel. By the way, if you are married, you're also completely dedicated to the gospel within your household. So, yes, some people serve this way, some people serve that way. I don't want to hear any divisions within the community. Neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither celibate nor sexually active, neither fasting and abstaining from meat nor eating meat offered to idols. This is a pattern in the broader Pauline corpus. You cannot distinguish yourself. The only thing that is a distinguishing mark is the mark of the gospel, which you can bear in any situation, with any identity, under any circumstances. It's universal. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And here people have misused and abused this verse over and over again as though there's something about sexuality that is tied to perdition. All Paul is saying, and I'm going to repeat his point, is that one should not make an issue out of something that is not an issue. And if your lack of self-control makes sexuality an issue, it's no different than Peter and James making circumcision an issue. So find a way to dismiss it as an issue. 
And marriage is a gift from the Lord that allows you to have a sexual outlet in such a way that your life is ordered properly so that you can get about the work and the service of God's teaching. He's not saying, if you're unmarried, if you're single, if you're a widow, good for you. No. He's saying, eh, you may need to get married. He's not giving anybody any oxygen that they might be able to live off this idea that they might be just a little bit better than the other people. He keeps away that feeling of superiority that anyone might have. He's just saying, it's better to get married than to be tied up in a knot about sexuality. Just get over yourself. That's what he's saying. And getting over sexuality is getting over yourself. And this is why we make such a big deal out of sex in popular culture, because we're egotistical. It's not liberation. It's self-enslavement to something that is just a part of everyday life. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Very simply here, he's being consistent in what he's saying about unity and household order and submission. Just as you must submit to your spouse, you have no right to make demands of your spouse. You can't leave your spouse. Your spouse can leave you, but you can't leave your spouse. That's implicit here and comes out more and more in the letter that you are the loser. Now, if you're both believers, Paul can say to both of you, you're not allowed to get divorced. But if your wife or your husband is not a believer and they want to leave you, you have no right to control them and keep them in your household because they don't belong to you. But now he's speaking to the addressee and saying, whatever your spouse wants, you have no right to leave, whether you're a male or a female. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. You cannot impose anything on someone who is not within God's household. You have no rights. So you have to lose to your wife who is baptized but you have to lose all the more to your wife who is not baptized. You can sense that this feeling of individuals who want to make themselves pure. Oh, I have to distance myself from the unbeliever in order to stay pure. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be married in order to be more pure. This whole temptation of the human being to want to make themselves superior to others and therefore ruin the community and not submit to the other. It's what Paul is fighting against. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. You cannot divorce an unbelieving spouse. You have no right. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. All this means is that by demonstrating the law of Christ in your submission to someone who does not accept the law of Christ as authoritative, you make the law of Christ functional in your household for the sake of your spouse and your children, whether or not they're baptized. There is an implicit judgment here, too, because this is assuming, of course that you, the believer, are actually acting like a believer. You're actually acting according to the gospel and following the preceding verses because you're not going to sanctify an unbelieving spouse if you yourself are acting as an unbeliever yourself. This is what Paul has been talking about over the last several chapters. Your actions according to your belief are more important than the belief that you have. 
And here it is, the gut punch that undermines fundamentalism and the desire to impose your religion on other people. Yet, Paul says, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. In other words, the Christian cannot ask for a certificate of divorce, but if the unbelieving spouse asks for it, the Christian has no grounds on which to demand that their spouse stay. This is a very serious matter, and it is the ultimate expression of biblical love when you allow the other one to leave if they don't want to stay. For Paul, just like there's no court for the Christian in debating who got how many bushels, there's no divorce court either. You let the other win. Do not fight, because you have no power over that person. They don't belong to you. This is a very fierce but loving and wise teaching that we would do well to heed We live in this culture of divorce where people abuse each other. And they spend thousands of dollars in order to work through whatever argument they have going in front of the judges, just like we had in the last chapter. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? If you let your spouse go in peace because they don't want to be with you anymore, if you are gracious and patient and kind and submissive in the divorce, and you don't fight for your rights in the divorce. If you submit, you have no idea what that act of love would mean, not only for your spouse, as Paul is saying here, but for the children. Because children learn as much from parents when they go through domestic strife as they do when everything is under control. That is what Paul is teaching here, and it is powerful and wise you can only save your husband or save your wife if you're living according to the gospel, if you're living according to the law of love, if you're submitting to them and submitting to their will, then there is a shot that they can receive the gospel. If you're married, make sure it's about the gospel. If you're celibate, make sure it's about the gospel. If you're divorcing, it has to be about the gospel, which means in your case, you are not allowed a divorce, but if your spouse wants a divorce, you have to allow a divorce. In Every step of the way, it is the law of love which is primary. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. This is a very nice way of saying, you're not God, live and let live. But you, because you're baptized, have to live the way the gospel orders you to live. That doesn't mean you can impose it on others. And so... I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to become circumcised. Why? Because you are making an issue out of something that is immaterial. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. And why is this coming all of a sudden after a long discussion of marriage? Because there's all the discussion of what state one is in, whether one is in a married state or in a celibate state. And we see in our own churches the way that 
the whether one is married or whether one is celibate is a problem or a good thing or an advantage or a disadvantage. What he's saying is that it's all about receiving the gospel because it has to be everyone teaching the gospel and living the gospel. And whether you come in as a believer, so to speak, circumcised, or as an unbeliever, so to speak, uncircumcised, it doesn't matter because whatever state you're in, you are to receive and teach the gospel. That is the only thing that matters. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. You know, if you can stay unmarried, it makes life a little bit easier and you have more spare time to do the work of the gospel. But if you need to get married, get married. If you're a slave, you're a slave. If you can become free, fine. But don't make an issue out of it because you can fulfill the gospel as a slave. Right, but you know, freeing yourself from slave is not because slavery is bad. That's not what Paul is saying. He's, you know, if you're not if you're not having to take orders from a master, then you can dedicate yourself 100% to the gospel. If the master has you doing a bunch of other chores, you submit according to the gospel, you live according to the gospel, you make sure the gospel is what runs your life and that you do preach it at every possibility. But you still have to do whatever chores he has for you. This is offensive in an American setting for a couple of reasons. One, because of our history of abuse with respect to slavery in the United States. But also because we are consumers as Christians. We go to a church and we function not as members of a household in which we are slaves, but we function as consumers of the meal offered in the household, as though we are attending a restaurant gathering. People come to church, they ask, what will the priest do for me? What will this community do for me? They do not come with the mindset of a slave, which is what has the master of the household asked me to do. And so when you come across a verse like this, they start going into a tailspin trying to explain the sociological context and why Paul is using this, and he didn't really mean it, and if he lived in our time, he would talk differently. I disagree. I think he was talking exactly about slavery in a Roman household, and I think that is the exact paradigm for what the baptized person is in church. Both with marriage and with slavery, you want to try to free up as much of your time and resources and strength so that you can be really dedicated to the gospel and teaching and preaching. You know, I think it's a good challenge also to think, what are the things that come across our mind when it becomes time to serve the needy that keep us from doing it. Now, sometimes we have perfectly good reasons. We have to serve our family. We have to make a living so that our family can eat. Okay, fine. But Paul is encouraging you to free up yourself from whatever you can as long as you are not crossing the law of love. So if things are going through your mind, oh, I have to make sure that I'm saving more money, oh, I have to make sure I can buy this thing, Paul would encourage you those things that are keeping you from serving the gospel, what can you do about eliminating those without sacrificing the law of love? Can you remove those from your life, if at all possible? And this is a good challenge for those who are married and not slaves, to be thinking about this. What are things in our life that we can remove so that we are more dedicated to that following? The key with verse 21 is that his mention of slavery is special. Because whether you are made free in worldly terms or not, you're still a slave, so what's the big deal? That's the point. It's a hit. Because the married couple technically are slaves. The celibate technically is a slave. The slave is a slave, even if he gets freedom from his Roman master. 
it's a very difficult teaching, but it's the heart of baptism in 1 Corinthians. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Right. The difference between the human master and Christ as the master is that the only orders you have from Christ are the law of love, the gospel. Those are the only orders you have. So it's very easy to fulfill the gospel and be the slave of Christ because your commandment is the same. When you have an earthly master, it's a little bit more complicated, but that's why Paul is saying, just make sure you're serving as a good slave. Make sure you're serving as a good husband or a good wife because your command is always going to be do the gospel, teach the gospel, no matter who your master is. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. And here the verb for purchase, agorazo, is the same as what he uses in Galatians. It means to purchase a slave's freedom in the market. That's how the term is used. So he's reminding you that whatever you were when you were called, God owns you. God paid a price for you. Now you're his property. You don't go to work at your job and do whatever you want. If you talk to your boss about your personal life, your boss says, that's wonderful. But if your personal life gets in the way of work, your boss says, we have a problem. That's how Paul is talking. You now work for God. So all this stuff is fine as long as it doesn't get in the way of your job. What a powerful metaphor for what a church community should be. Not a place where you go to be comforted and coddled, but a place where you go to get your assignment because you were baptized. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Because those who seek to change their condition are always trying to change their status. And it's not about your status because he just emphasized you are a slave and you belong to Christ and you no longer have a choice about what kind of status you want to have. When you're in the Roman household, you don't get to choose anything about your status. It's only up to the father who decides who has what status. This was in the story of the prodigal son. The kid wanted to be a slave. He said, no, you're my son. In the Roman household, the father can make you whatever he wants to make you. And so if you're trying to change your status, you're going against the head of the household. You're trying to impose your will on the order of things. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. We'll pick up the rest of Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians in our next episode. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.